verses, and it's like it's building up to this. And yet, in a lot of ways, we do well to almost read it in reverse order to see what it's building, because it's building on the stuff that comes after. Um, and so th think about it in that way. As we're reading through here, as we think about this, uh, this passage, he's uh, praying for things and asking for these things or, and saying these things, and then he says, because, so that, because, and he, and he keeps building on it, and, and the emphasis really is on the preeminence of Christ, and I want to focus on that. Understanding a bit more of what this the, the importance of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Truly recognizing who he is is so foundational for us to grow and mature in our Christian life. And that's really what uh, he's focusing on, but he's laying the foundation with the preeminence of Christ. So I want us to uh, walk down through here and, and look at this. I'm going to be reading the first 23 verses, but breaking it into uh, three different sections here. Starting with the introduction and the greeting in the first eight verses, this is from the English Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace be from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have had for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. I'm not going to be just focusing a lot on these verses in particular, but it, it sets the stage for what Paul is writing about later. And we don't know much about this church in Colossae or even much about the city of Colossae. Um, there is essentially no history, recorded history, about this city. Um, apparently, it was about a hundred miles, it's a small town, about a hundred miles east of Ephesus. And in contrast to Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and some of these other uh, cities where churches were located, Colossae was a small town where this church was. Epaphras was apparently the leader, and he was known and respected by Paul. Um, but it's, we really don't know much more than that. His, some historians actually believe that the city was destroyed by an earthquake, uh, and it could have been as soon as a, just several years after this letter was written. There is a mound, um, they call it a tell, but it has never been excavated uh, on the site there uh, where, where Colossae was located. But there really is nothing in the history books and so forth as what happened to the city of Colossae. But, so it's interesting that Paul wrote a letter to this uh, particular church in this small town 
uh, and he, he emphasized uh, it was important enough that he wanted to re uh, make sure that the church heard from him. And from these introductory verses, it's clear that Paul has a deep appreciation for and wants to encourage the church, the believers there. And throughout this book, this letter, uh, the four chapters, he emphasizes the preeminence of Jesus Christ again and again, uh, or the supremacy. He wrote this letter at a time when there were apparently false teachers influencing the believers in this rather young church. What's less clear is what those false teachings actually were. There's significant differences in opinion among commentators and uh, scholars on what that false teaching may have been that was permeating the church or was uh, affecting the church there. However, the one word that is prominent throughout this letter, and I notice that every time I read uh, in Colossians, is a small three-letter word, and that is the word all. Um, it's a small and yet incredibly mighty word. And it's interesting that the emphasis on this word all is an indicator that these false teachers were suggesting, were implying that Jesus Christ was not sufficient, was not all that was needed to live the Christian life or to follow Christ or to be a believer. The Greek word that is translated all is also translated in other words, uh, in other ways as well, depending how it's used in the sentence. So the words everything, everyone, fully, whole, every, are other ways that the word all, the same Greek word, is translated. And they all uh, go back to that same Greek word. It's a three-letter Greek word, pas, and it is used 39 times in the 95 verses of this book. So nearly one in every third verse, there is a reference to uh, this idea of all or everything. And then in the first 23 verses of this chapter, what we're looking at, it's used 15 times. Um, so I, it's important as we notice words like this and so forth. I don't recall if there's any in this first eight verses or not, but we certainly see them beginning in verse 9. In verses 9 to 14, then, we um, have a powerful prayer for this small town, Colossae, that Paul has never visited. Let's begin in verse, uh, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, giving thanks, I'm sorry, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This prayer has been a huge inspiration for me and just reading this again and again to consider what is Paul praying here on behalf of this congregation he has never even met other than perhaps probably the leader. Ten years ago this past fall, I was ordained as the lead pastor of this congregation. And soon after that, I began praying that God would give me a verse or some verses from Scripture that could be a kind of an anchor point or a reference point for myself as well as for us as a congregation. And it was two years later when this prayer in Colossians 1 suddenly caught my attention and it felt like God was, at that moment, just opened my eyes and it was like this is the answer to your prayer from the last two years. And ever since that, so over the last eight plus years, I have come back to this passage just again and again. And what does this mean um, for us as a group? What does it mean for us as a, for myself and for us as a church? And so it's become a, a big motivation as well as a source of encouragement, but it's a reality check as well. It provides a good perspective on so many aspects of life. And, and Paul prays this profound prayer for a group of believers, this church in Colossae that he had never even seen. And so as I've read this prayer dozens of times and probably hundreds of times, I've, I just fail to be, uh, I fail to uh, be amazed at how much it's needed today, every bit as it was 2,000 years ago in this small church. The words are simple, yet the depth and the scope is truly profound, beyond my ability, our ability, I would say, to fully comprehend. Paul is praying that these young believers grow strong spiritually, serving Christ, bearing fruit, remaining faithful regardless of what they face all because of Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. But uh, beyond that, it's about who Jesus is, as we'll see in subsequent verses. And, you know, I continue to pray this prayer for myself and for us as a church to this day. I believe that as God answers this prayer, he's going to be able to show his greatness through a small-town church like even like we have here. So I just want to highlight a few, uh, I mean, focus on a number of the phrases that we find through here. I will tell you right now, I don't fully understand this, but it is profound. It's, it's deep what, is, what Paul is praying here. So he begins his prayer by asking God that this church, this local group of believers, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. commentator would put it this way, filled with the full knowledge of God's will. This idea of filled is this, is this word all. It's, it's, it's everything, but filled with that. And he uses three distinct words in describing what he is praying that they would be filled with. 
First, it's the full knowledge of God's will. And this knowledge means to have a close relationship with, an intimacy with. It's requesting a full and intimate relationship with God, and as a result of this relationship, we will know God's will. It's a focus on God and our relationship with Him. As we focus on God and our relationship with Him and what He wants, that can only happen when we're emptying ourselves of our own wants and desires and focusing on what God wants instead of what I want. And then he goes on, with this full knowledge of God's will, we need two other things as well. He says, all spiritual wisdom. And then he goes on, all spiritual understanding. He says, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, but it's, uh, it's applying to both of those. So all spiritual wisdom. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge or what we know. We can do something, let me rephrase that, we can know something without conducting ourselves in a manner that's consistent with what we actually know. For example, we can know there are significant health benefits from regular exercise. That's knowledge. And at the point that that awareness or knowledge leads us to actually begin to regularly exercise, that's when we attain wisdom. And so that's what he's saying here. The wisdom is the conduct that results from what we know. We can have a relationship with God, but unless that relationship impacts our daily conduct, the way that we live our lives, we lack wisdom. Paul is praying for all spiritual wisdom. The type of conduct that will be evidenced by one that has a vibrant relationship with God, that truly knows God. All spiritual understanding. This understanding is from an intellectual comprehension of abstract thoughts. It's, it's our being able to actually think about the deep things of God. We're never going to understand God or all spiritual things. However, we do have the ability to think about and comprehend additional aspects and truths about God that we may not have been aware of in the past. And Paul is praying for a full relationship with God that results in these incomplete and consistent spiritual conduct and an increasing comprehension of the deep theological and intellectual aspects of who God is. In chapter 2, it's interesting, Paul again references the same words, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom in verses 2 and 3, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the key to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding really lie within Jesus Christ himself. He is the supreme one. He is the only one worthy of that highest priority in our lives. Then in verse 10, he continues here in chapter 1, that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we're to be fully pleasing, we're to be bearing fruit. 
But he begins that so that. So the reason that we are full of the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding is to bring the honor right back to Jesus Christ and to walk and conduct our lives in such a way that Jesus is not embarrassed or ashamed of us. We're to conduct ourselves in such a way that enables him to declare, look at my brother or sister over here. I'm honored to call them my sibling. That's the kind of uh, way that we should be living our lives, fully pleasing. There again, that word fully is the word all, all pleasing to Jesus, doing nothing that brings shame or reproach on Jesus Christ, who's our Savior and our Redeemer. Not mostly pleasing, fully pleasing, 100%. Everything we do, every word we say, every action, every reaction, every thought. Being fully pleasing to God is humanly impossible for any of us. But that's what Paul is praying for these believers to attain. And we'll come to some of that a little bit more, how we do this. Bearing fruit. Spiritual fruit are character qualities that God develops in our lives as we grow and mature. I don't believe that any of the fruit of the Spirit are natural responses to given situations. Rather, it's only as the Holy Spirit transforms us into the person that these new character qualities can emerge. And fruit has several distinctive characteristics. One, it can't be manufactured by ourselves. It comes from the life of Jesus in our lives. Think of the vine and the branches. It comes out of who we are, not what we do. Fruit is also intended for others. It's not for the benefit of the tree, but it's, the, it's to bring nourishment and refreshment to those around, to others. And then genuine fruit will always have a seed within itself to germinate and bring forth even more fruit. And so those are some of the ways that you distinguish between uh, genuine fruit and something less than that. Am I bearing fruit or am I simply producing ornamental cherry blossoms like we have seen around here in the last couple of weeks? Am I growing in every good work in the knowledge of God? Growing in the knowledge of God is not going to happen with us doing nothing. It requires desire of wanting to know more about God. It requires time, investing time in our relationship with God, and it requires focus of blocking out distractions so that we can focus on our relationship with God. It's not theoretical or abstract, but growing uh, in the knowledge of God is to be fruitful and productive. And um, it's not just head knowledge, it's also heart knowledge. Verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Paul now points out that these things that he's been praying for, for the Colossae believers, are really impossible to achieve apart from the strength and power that is given us through the Holy Spirit. It's not attainable on our own. 
another way of uh, paraphrasing this, we're made strong or powerful with all power. It, we're given that, but it's not something that we have in ourselves. We are strengthened by the source of all power, which is God. We're personally incapable of being filled with knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. We're incapable of walking worthy of God or being fully pleasing to him or bearing fruit. It is only through the supernatural power within us that is beyond ourselves. And Paul's praying that this supernatural power and strength be given to these believers that otherwise is completely impossible. But when you ask for these things and when we want to do these things for the right reason, to truly honor God, I believe that that's when he begins to answer our prayers and bring these things into our lives. But then he goes on as well and says, praying that these believers will have all endurance and patience with joy. That indicates there's going to be difficulties. We don't need endurance and patience when things are going very well for us. Uh, we just simply don't need it. But he's praying for endurance and patience. Paul is preparing these believers for the realities that all of us are going to face at some point. There's going to be trials. There's difficulties. There's challenges. But Paul is clear. Endure whatever comes with patience and with joy. It's not going to continue indefinitely. It might feel like it, but it won't. God's with us, and he's strengthening us even in the midst of these difficult times. This is not just ordinary endurance, but it's a brave endurance in the face of temptation, hardships, and even potential persecution that he's praying on their behalf. Verses 12 to 14, then, is the idea of, of giving thanks. All of this is to be done with an attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness as we consider what Jesus did for us. He's included us believers in his inheritance. He's delivered us from the bondage of darkness. He's transformed us into his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, the eternal kingdom of the king of kings. We've been redeemed. Our sins have been forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus. And there's so much to be grateful for. Nothing's going to come close to being an adequate expression of thanksgiving when we consider what he has given, what he has done for us. And as challenging as this prayer is, as I have studied this, I've pondered this, I believe that all of this, even this prayer and what he's asking for pales in comparison to who Jesus is and his preeminence, which then Paul outlines here in the next nine verses. <clears throat> so continuing in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things 
were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, if you're just reading down through here, it could appear like uh, Paul suddenly becomes so excited about describing the redemption that we have in verse 13, uh, verse 12 and 13, that he now is writing an entire paragraph about Christ's supremacy and his preeminence. Um, I don't know for sure what was going through Paul's mind, but I don't think that it was just a bunny trail, if you will. I think this is getting to the core of what he wanted to communicate to uh, this, this uh, audience. There is likely, there was a form of Gnosticism being taught within the Colossian church in which they were teaching that certain people could attain higher degrees of knowledge about God. So you could, uh, Gnosticism has to do with gnosis or knowing, different degrees of knowing. And so the focus of these individuals was to become more enlightened than those around them and therefore having a higher authority and ultimately achieving, and they probably wouldn't put it this way, but a godlike status, basically where you're superior to everyone else. It was about knowing the most, the greatest knowledge, the superiority of those around them. And uh, in a lot of ways, this ties right back to the story that uh, Kendall read for our devotional this morning. Uh, it's about as silly as if you think about it. Like, how can we know and start comparing ourselves among ourselves? But Paul, I believe, here was very intentionally focusing in very sharply that Jesus Christ and he alone is the supreme one. He is far superior to anything or anyone else. There is nothing, no one else in all of creation that comes close to rival the power and the preeminence, the supremacy of who Jesus Christ is. Nine times in these nine verses, Paul emphasizes this Greek word translated all or everything. All and everything leave room for nothing else. There is no second tier. There is no third tier. There is simply no other. There is nothing else. Jesus is so far superior completely preeminent to everything else. I was trying to think of some comparison. It's a little bit like trying to compare a brief second 
with a trillion years. Or a grain of sand compared to all of the sand on the beaches and the desert on the globe. There simply isn't a reference point for how much superior Jesus is than anything else. As humans, we need to be very careful in using such words as all and everything because most of the time we mean, what we mean is like when we say all the time, we really mean most of the time or very many times. So, I mean, when we use all and every, those are very, that means everything. And very seldom is that true. But Jesus is, uh, Paul is not exaggerating about Jesus being everything, being all. And he's very intentional in focusing and emphasizing that. He's demonstrating God, Jesus' infinite superiority over anything in creation. And just walking down through these briefly, <clears throat> Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's simply superior to and sovereign over everything that exists. By him, all things were created. Literally everything, it, he goes on, in heaven and on earth. Visible or invisible. How does someone create something invisible? Just think about it. Kingdoms, powers, rulers, authorities, everything was created by Jesus. And he goes on. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things. He was there even before time began. In Jesus, all things hold together. And this is one that I kind of have to stop and pause sometimes because I believe the world would literally disintegrate. It would literally fly to pieces if it wasn't for Jesus Christ holding that together. He's the head of the church. He's the one in control. We simply have the privilege of being part of a body, a movement that is led by this preeminent being uh, to this day. Jesus is the beginning, or maybe you could even say that even before the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Last week we celebrated Easter. He, he's the first one that resurrected in, with the resurrection body to live forever and is alive to this day. He's the very first one. In everything, Jesus is preeminent. Not prominent, not important. He's preeminent. He's supreme. Nothing comes close to matching his superiority. He is preeminent in everything. And then he continues, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, this word fullness means all. The all of God was pleased to dwell within Jesus. Um, everything of God, the fullness of God, dwelt within Jesus Christ. Jesus is supreme. 
Jesus is preeminent. Anything we may think is important pales in comparison to who Jesus is, has done, and is doing. But what I find remarkable is that Jesus doesn't dismiss us as nothing. He could. He'd have every right to. But he continues then in verse, um, verse 21 that Jesus reconciled us. Even though we had been hostile and evil towards him by sacrificially giving his life on the cross through his burial, the resurrection of the dead on the third day. And he did this for one reason. It says, in order to present each one of us holy, blameless, and without reproach to God. Do we grasp what an incredible and priceless gift that is? It is certainly not what we deserve. And then Paul continues, if you continue in the faith, which is uh, an interesting statement because I believe that each of us has the propensity to turn away from God, turn our backs on God, giving ourselves to something else other than the supremacy of God, the supremacy that Jesus deserves. And Paul is encouraging these Colossian believers, remain stable, remain steadfast, don't look to alternatives other than this true gospel that he represents. There is no alternative. There is no second option. Only the gospel is true. And all of creation testifies to that reality all the time. Jesus is the one who both created and sustains everything. Why would we choose to put our trust and confidence in anyone or anything else. This passage describing Jesus uses some of the most vivid and poetic words, I think, in all of Scripture in describing our Redeemer. Um, in order to attribute to him the supremacy and the preeminence that he so rightfully deserves. I find it interesting that in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on behalf, on your behalf in his prayers, that he may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. The fact that he wants to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God uh, is a result of, I believe, is the proper response to understanding the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And uh, like I said, in many ways, I feel like this preeminence is what underpins the prayer that Paul was praying for the Colossian believers in 9 through 14. This prayer is rooted in understanding who Jesus is and the importance of recognizing and acknowledging his preeminence, his supremacy, his infinite superiority as reality and then gladly surrendering ourselves to that. As we give Jesus that total preeminence, only then can God begin to answer the prayer that Paul had for these believers. I believe God's calling us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. 
with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to walk worthily, fully pleasing to Jesus Christ, bearing fruit and growing, to be strengthened by God's power, and to be giving thanks. But for this to be possible, Jesus must be the supreme King and Lord of our life. Does Jesus truly have the supremacy in your life? Is he preeminent in all the areas? Jesus deserves preeminence. As we give him supremacy in our lives, then he can best answer this prayer that we have, that he has for us collectively and individually. And I'd like to just pray this with you. Let's stand together for a closing prayer. I'm going to pray this verses 9 through 14 for us as a group and personalize that for us. We pray asking that we may be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ's will in all spiritual wisdom and all spiritual understanding so that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing and increasing in the knowledge of God. May we be strengthened with all power according to Jesus' glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly more than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.